The FT's How to Build a Healthy City podcast is supported by Novo Nordisk. Listen to the end of this episode to hear how Novo Nordisk's employees are working to defeat diabetes. The city region of Greater Manchester is home to more than 2.8 million people. It's famous for its football teams and its rich musical heritage. But today, it's also creating interest after becoming the first area in England to have a devolved healthcare deal, meaning healthcare spending is decentralised and controlled locally. Is it better for local politicians to have more of a say over healthcare policies? I think it's a very 20th century notion that you go and see a GP and you always leave with medication. People often have physical ill health because of something else that's not right in their life. The answer to the problems people have isn't often found in the pharmaceutical industry. I think it's found in the local community. That's Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester. Mr Burnham leads a combined authority of 10 Manchester boroughs who, as part of devolution, are also championing community-led solutions to certain mental health and wellbeing problems. It's known as social prescribing. I'm currently doing a cookery course, which initially greatly amused my wife. I've been going three weeks and I made a, a lasagna bake. My daughter's a vegetarian. She shared it with me the other night, said it was brilliant. So it's just the awareness of what's there. And I think if I'd have been at the practice I used to be at, that would have just been it. That's Patrick Connell, a patient at Alvinley Family Practice in Stockport. Patrick was referred to social prescribing schemes after a forced retirement left him suffering from depression and anxiety. How do you build a healthy city? That's the subject of this series. My name's Darren Dodd, and I'm the editor of FT Health Reports. For this podcast, I've been speaking to six FT journalists in cities around the world, from New York to Tokyo to Singapore. Hearing from the politicians, health experts, and local residents who are changing lives through creative interventions. In this episode, we're in Greater Manchester. Andy Burns covers the north of England for the FT. Hi, Andy. Hi, Darren. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. So what's interesting about Greater Manchester? How is it building a healthier city? Well, Manchester's the first city region in the UK to have a devolved healthcare deal. That means the NHS budget, which is run centrally and nationally, and the social care budget, which is run by local councils, have been put together. So the two bodies between them decide how they're going to spend the money. And uh, it's really the mayor, Andy Burnham, who's been leading this devolution experiment. He's one of the first wave of directly elected mayors in the UK. One of the big things he's pushing is social prescribing, which is basically getting family doctors, GPs, to refer patients who might be suffering from long-term problems such as mental health issues, loneliness, things that aren't necessarily going to be helped by medication and trying to get them active in community activities and courses. So I went to speak to Andy Burnham, the mayor, at the Greater Manchester Combined Authority offices right in the heart of the city of Manchester. How have you been able to use devolution in Greater Manchester to change the way healthcare is done here? It's about thinking differently about healthcare and thinking it first as a sort of community-first response, integrating the health service, not just with social care, but with housing, with leisure, making effectively this one system that 
kind of comes up with the optimum solution for people. As mayor of Greater Manchester, it's possible to have a vision for people's health. We're focusing on school readiness, making sure all kids are ready to learn when they get to primary school. We're investing in our young people when they're at school. We are the only city region designated age-friendly by the World Health Organization in the UK, which is a big accolade. But we are also becoming a centre for social prescribing. And I think this example of social prescribing really explains how the health service has to change the way it thinks. That it isn't just treating ill health, it's starting to build health and help people control their own health. So it sounds like Andy Burnham's got quite an ambitious vision for the health of the city and its people. Tell me a little bit more about social prescribing. So he's really trying to find ways of improving people's health and well-being that just doesn't add to, you know, the budget for popping pills and paying for medicines. Uh, it's a big experiment for Greater Manchester. Andy Burnham calls the city a test tube because it hasn't been done elsewhere. Effectively, I would say we're the Petri dish or the test tube in the NHS system. We're coming at things a different way. You know, we're not doing the old top-down thing. We're trying to break down the silos in communities and get all the public services working together to think about building health, as I say, in homes, in families, in individuals. And that's often a different thing to treating health when someone turns up at the health service. Uh, so it can't be done overnight, but I think it is a paradigm shift from a 20th century treatment model of healthcare towards a 21st century population health model or a health promotion model. People will not find good health and well-being through a pharmaceutical intervention only. It might be part of what they need for the short term, but the long-term answer lies in the community. And I'm really proud that here in Greater Manchester, we are getting people active at a rate that is three times the national average. And that is a big tribute to what we call GM moving. And at the suggestion of one of our really bright young thinkers here in Greater Manchester, I introduce a policy across our public bodies that people are allowed to wear their trainers to work. We like trainers in Greater Manchester. You know, we do like a bit of Adidas retro uh, trainers and all the rest of it. So we don't need much persuasion to wear them. But what I said was, I didn't mind if anyone came to a meeting with me with trainers on, as long as they were walking to the meeting. Or We call it active souls. And it's been um, a bit of a revolution that's been building around. And you'll notice lots of people wander around our building with trainers on. And I'm just looking at yours. You they're know. not the best. I wouldn't want to run a marathon in these uh, sort of heavy brogues, but uh, still, I'm not really living my own policy today. Uh, but that is a really soft policy. No one's given us powers to do that from government. But just setting a climate where physical activity is just sort of talked about, supported, that's what we're trying to do through devolution. But Andy's vision goes a bit further than wearing trainers. What's the situation like on the ground in Greater Manchester? Is social prescribing actually being used by doctors? Social prescribing has been picked up by a number of family doctor practices. It's not obligatory. It's up to GPs if they want to adopt it. But one that has done so is called the Alvinley Family Practice in the town of Woodley, which is in Stockport. Stockport's one of the ten boroughs of Greater Manchester. It's a town in its own right. And I went to Woodley to speak to Dr Juida Idu, who runs the practice with her husband. We don't really tend to use the term social prescribing as much. We tend to use the term collaborative practice because that's what we are. We collaborate with our community, with our patients. 90% of our health has nothing to do with medicine. I can only support you for 10% of your health needs. All that other 90% comes from being connected with other people. It comes from 
having access to good housing, exercise, lots of other opportunities that I can't influence. And how does it work in effect? What are you trying to do for people? I think it started when we had a real difficult lull with workload. A number of GPs now really, really struggle with their paperwork, with their bloods. And we felt that the morale both for the clinical team and for the admin team was pretty low. And you start to think, well, it's only going to get worse or do I need to start thinking differently? And we as GPs knew that at least one in five of our patients in our clinics didn't have a medical need. And if we could reduce our own demand of those 20% of patients that we didn't need to see because there were other activities for them and other support for them, then we actually might create some reduction in the pressure and actually enhance the access to appointments. And when you say one in five that comes doesn't have a medical need, what needs do they have? What are the other sort of challenges people are facing in this area? So I think most of the things we're seeing are because of the widening gap between health inequalities and seeing an increase in poverty. As people lose their jobs and become poorer, they start to feel unwell, they start to become depressed, there's low levels of anxiety, it affects their relationships, there's marital breakdown, affects their relationships with their children. All those things culminate and actually they might just come and see the GP because they can't manage that. We don't treat our patients as a a difficulty, it's a partnership and if you're going to make that paradigm shift well, from illness to wellness, then you've got to change your relationship with your patients. And if we don't have an appointment for two weeks, and that does happen, it might have been four weeks if we hadn't initiated some of the things that we have done. It sounds like Juida's practice is really thriving. Well, it has. And I mean, the GP patient list has actually increased. So from about 3,000 patients to 5,000 over the last couple of years. It's a very busy practice but Juida says that morale has really improved among the staff because they really feel like they're making a difference. They're not just seeing the same people again and again. People actually seem to be getting better. And it's very much a family practice, and that's very important to the way that they work and the ethos they have. So how does social prescribing actually work at Juida's practice? What does it need to become successful? Well, they certainly had some help. They initially went to a national NHS organisation called All Together Better that basically helps healthcare and other care services collaborate together. And that was the kind of model that the GP surgery wanted to move to. One of the key things about that is finding a core group of volunteers who will help with these social prescription services. They actually need patients to help other patients get better. So the volunteers were an absolutely critical part of it we realised we had a really strong group of individuals that could offer activities to our patients and they actually led this. I can't take any credit for it as a GP other than being really proud of them and supporting them. I think people actually like to give. We like to have purpose. We want to be able to give something back. And what amazed me is that they made 18 friends for life between themselves, having not known each other, and also that their levels of anxiety or depression reduced. I know there was one of them who had come off antidepressants, and another one that really tickled me was with the allotments and growing their own vegetables. He said, well, Dr. Idu, you can stop your laxative prescription. I don't need that anymore. So I was thinking, gosh, we're obviously saving money um, by supporting people to be healthier. (laughs) They sound like quite a bunch of characters, the volunteers. Yeah, they are, and... You know, you're very dependent on the people you find, I guess, and uh, actually having people who are prepared to step forward and do this stuff. 
the NHS is funded essentially by taxation. A lot of people feel their taxes pay for it, and why would they need to be volunteering to help work for it effectively? But in Woodley, people were very much galvanised and empowered by it. Uh, They've got about 17 volunteers now who have been going since they started over a year ago. They call themselves the Health Practice Champions. And I spoke to the chief champion, who's a guy called Dave Chalton. I met him at the surgery and we walked across the precinct where the surgery is located to the local cafe, which is actually one of the venues that they use for social prescribing events. The call to arms came out and I thought, oh, go on, have a look, you know, I've got time on my hands. So we came to this uh, meeting and there was 18 of us, well, 17 of us, and that's how it all started. And I went to the loo and come back and I was chair. How about that? We have a singing group here, a sing-along session every month in here. We work very closely. This is a community learning partnership run by Nicola, which might be in here today, whose mum has the chip shop. So it's all very incestuous. My name's Dave Cholton. I'm the chair of the Alvinley Family Practice Health Champion Group here in Woodley, Stockport. And how old are you, Dave? I'm 72 years old. I know it's hard to believe. As old as the NHS, I think As old as the NHS, I am indeed, which is quite apt, really. Right back at the start, one of the things that the practice did was look at who uses the facilities in the doctors, basically who comes along to the doctors the most. And right at the top of the list was a young lady of 86 years old. By and large, basically what she wanted to do was sit and talk to somebody. So we suggested to her to come along to the sing-along. So we said, well, we'll come and pick you up and we'll bring you down. And we did. Sat her down with two other elderly ladies. And she had so much fun. Every week, those three ladies used to meet. And we never saw her again. Say we never saw her again, we did. But she got so guilty that she hadn't been in to see the nurses. She came in with a box of chocolates and some flowers because she hadn't been to see them for so long. So that's one success story. So it sounds like the whole community gets involved. That's right. There's the GP practice at the centre of it all, but the local cafes got involved, the locals who volunteer, there are people running allotments, and the Wednesday Wonder, which is a short walk around the town that anyone can join, and... What's interesting about that is that they take the same route every time and I asked Dave why that was and he pointed out some of the challenges of this approach which is that basically the dreaded health and safety, dreaded for many people, comes into it so you can't just take a bunch of uh, elderly people on a walk anywhere these days. If you're in charge of them you have to have a set route, you have to walk the route yourself first so there are challenges but these group of volunteers took that on and one of the things that they're involved with is something called a Men Matters Group. Ah, that's interesting. And what does that group do? There's a you know bit of a cliche, which is probably still true, that men don't talk about their health as much as women. They don't go to the doctor as often as they should. So this is a new group that's been set up for elderly men to attend once a week to talk about their health and their lifestyle. And this all takes place down at an allotment, which the council gave them. And they've actually got a shed on the allotment, which looks a bit like a, a Swedish sauna. I mean, it's a beautiful wooden shed, smells lovely. So Dave took me down to the allotment to meet one of the Men's Matters attendees, a guy called Patrick Connell. I'm Patrick Connell, 75 years of age, married man, was a fully employed sales engineer until April of last year. And, well, this really caused the problem in as much as it was sort of my life. The MD basically turned on me and this created an enormous strain and stress on me. The bullying and harassment... um, 
And then it just finally one day just got on top of me, the 26th of April last year, you know, emblazoned in my mind. And I went to the surgery and I said, I just can't carry on. First of all, my immediate thing was just trying to feel right in my mind. I was sort of dealing with the stress-related things like depression, anxiety, and the emotion of not being able to do what you really want to do in life, which was my work. So what happened next? What did Patrick decide to do? One thing he did offer when I was talking to him was he wanted to job swap with me. So <laughs> he's, still, he's still quite keen to get back into the workplace at the age of 75. But I, I think he's being channeled into constructive activities that may be not quite so stressful. And this is really what I'm now doing. I'm filling my days and what I would normally do at work with, you know, activities. And do you think you would have found that without the doctor's intervention, without the practice saying, no, go and do this? not this one, because where I was at before, I think it was just... Um, you'd have been given some pills and you'd have been sitting at home probably still yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. Feeling sorry for yourself or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So even if these community courses and the classes already exist, the local doctor still plays a fundamental role when it comes to prescribing the activities, almost like validating them. Exactly. I mean, that's absolutely crucial because... A lot of the things here, you might think, well, people could do this anyway. You know, they can go and sing and join a community choir. They can go and play bowls. They can go and run an allotment. But it's the fact that the GP's at the centre of it and actually showing people that these activities are important as the medication they prescribe. So it sounds like it's having a clear impact for patients, at least for Patrick. What about the effect of social prescribing on the doctor's practice itself? I mean, the area of Woodley was, you know, quite run down a few years ago. Shops were shutting. And I think this has really pulled the community together. So people are taking more care of each other and care of the community. And Juida says she's really noticed a change all over the town, not just in the practice. I've been a GP here for 20 years and you would go out and you'd see used needles and you'd see litter and dirt and now I feel there's a real pride in the community. I feel there's much more connectedness. When I walk into the local cafe or if I walk into the local bakers, you know, there'll be lots of people that will smile and nod to you and they won't necessarily be your patients. So I do feel there's so much going on here. There's a real buzz around the place. And can you quantify the reduction in appointments? So total appointments, I'm not sure, but the length of appointments has been very different. So because now we see more complex patients, we can actually give them the time they need. So our appointment length time is 15 minutes and the wait is two weeks maybe but the wait was four weeks with 10 minutes before. So I think that's the best way I can quantify it for you. So we're small, but we're pretty, you know, we pack a punch. (laughs) Do you think there's any scepticism, though? Some doctors might argue it's not medicine. Yes. So, um, yes, there has been some scepticism. In fact, I've been made fun of by one GP who said, oh, Juida, are you off singing? I'm off doing some proper clinical work. And I was off singing because I love Tom Jones' Delilah, so why wouldn't I go and sing it? And singing with my patients isn't anything to be ashamed of because they might come and mention something to you if they see you in the cafe that they might not have done before. So I just think we have to embrace a new way of working particularly to manage our workload, but also to bring some joy back in general practice. So social prescribing must be quite difficult to actually quantify. Yeah, it is really difficult to measure. It's not like a cold or something or the flu where you get some treatment and then you feel better again. It's very hard to measure a lot of the time. And going to Woodley and visiting the practice and speaking to Juida and Patrick, 
really was the only way to sort of get a sense of the impact it can have on people. I mean, my impression of it was that it is effective. You could see that it made real changes in people's lives. This kind of programme's going on in Manchester. Do you think it's possible to have a strong long-term impact? I think it could. A lot of social glue of the UK has been fraying and fracturing a little bit because of austerity. A lot of council services have been cut back. A lot of community centres, a lot of parks shut. Libraries are closing earlier, things like that. And I think this is a way of trying to address the general stress in society. And I did ask Andy Burnham if he had some statistics on how social prescribing is having an impact in Greater Manchester. And how do you know it's working? From talking to patients, to be honest, who've benefited. So in Greater Manchester, in the first half of last year, around 12,500 people were benefiting from what you might call social prescribing interventions, talking therapy or whatever it might be. People just tell you that it's made a massive difference. You know, it's anecdotal, but it works. The figures show that we are beginning to make a difference on social prescribing. I think... Part of the problem here is the relationship the statutory services have always had with the community and voluntary sector. They kind of, well, some of them, distrust. I've said to the health service, look, these are your best allies. You know, develop a long-term five- or ten-year partnership and create a structured social prescribing service in every borough and try and get to a position where the bereavement counselling is as instant as medication. That's when social prescribing will really take off. And in terms of policy and local control, how important do you think this is, the idea that this kind of control can be devolved to various regions? Yeah, I think given that we have those health inequalities across the country, it probably makes sense for local areas to be able to prioritise. Greater Manchester's got this long legacy of industrial diseases and people who probably retired in their late 40s, early 50s from factories because they couldn't work anymore. Well, you know, those people have needs that may be different to other parts of the country. And this is one way of trying to help them with that. I think devolution is is not going to be reversed. It's interesting talking to Andy Burnham because he had areas in which he thought that they could devolve more and areas in which actually devolution probably didn't work best and you needed a national system. And remember, this guy was the health secretary. So he's quite a good person to assess, actually, whether this works or not. And I think he's saying it works very well in certain areas. In other areas, it may not be the right solution. Thanks to Andy Bands for joining me. That's it for this episode of How to Build a Healthy City. You can listen to our show for free on FT.com, Apple Podcasts, Acast or your podcatcher of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. To read more from me and other journalists you've heard from in this FT special report, visit ft.com slash reports. I'm Darren Dodd, and thanks for listening. How to Build a Healthy City podcast is supported by Novo Nordisk, a global healthcare company committed to defeating diabetes. We are sitting in a Terminal 3 in the airport. I just landed from the US, so yes, I want to go home. I travel too much, as my boss says. Yes, I do, but I think it's for a worthy cause sometimes also. Mads Tang Christensen is Head of Obesity Research at Novo Nordisk's Laboratories in Copenhagen. 
over 30 years, he's developed a deep understanding of the complex nature of obesity as a medical condition. We are a diabetes company, right? And we've been so for almost 100 years now. But if you look at the biggest number of patients that we're treating currently is patients with type 2 diabetes. And 80 to 90% of those patients are actually living with obesity. And obesity is the primary cause why they get type 2 diabetes. Nothing has changed over the last 30 years. The only thing that we see is more and more people are getting obese. One billion patients or people with obesity in 2030. That's scary. Right now, what we're focusing on is understanding what factors changes once you start sort of go on a diet, right? We know from studies in rat and studies in man, if we go on a diet, after a while, you're able to hold your diet, but then there's a lot of brain mechanisms that drive you towards eating. We can measure those things in the brain. We have a pretty good idea what it is. And what we are right now working on is how to counter these sort of counter-regulatory responses that the brain sets in in order to keep your weight up. The nuclear winter will come soon. That's what they're thinking. So basically they say, we need to pile on calories. And that's the way your brain is wired. When I tell it to people, to my wife and to her friends, obviously they know that I work in the obesity field. And as you can see, I'm also struggling a little bit myself with overweight, which is interesting since I've been spending 30 years. And that's probably the most important dialogue that I have is actually to convince people and also my friends that obesity is a disease. And I think the most important thing is that we need to convince ourselves, the society, the payers, the politicians, that yes, we need lifestyle change. People need to be responsible. They need to exercise. They need to eat healthy. But from all the data we have in all the clinical studies that's been done, we need also to have a sort of metabolic offering meaning a compound or a drug that can assist in the weight loss because obesity is a chronic disease. We talk about weight loss a lot, but in reality what we want to do, we want to improve patients' lives. And this may seem weird, but just the sort of ability to go and tie your shoe for some of the people living with obesity is a task that they can't perform or when they perform it, they are exhausted afterwards, right? Getting off from a chair, playing with their kids, things that they can't do when they live with obesity. So it's much more about that. And it's not a question of everybody should look like Claudia Schiffer. That's not going to be the case, right? Yeah, and that's not the reason why we're doing it. It's not disheartening because sometimes I get to meet patients that either have received our drug or a competitor's drug and they turn their life around. And that's actually the joy. Every time you see people that are changing their life and taking much more pleasure in it. So, yeah, so it's not disheartening. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. I'm Lars Furgaard Jorgensen, president and CEO of Nordnorsk, a global healthcare company with more than 95 years of innovation and leadership in diabetes care. This heritage has given us experience and capabilities that also enable us to help people defeat other serious chronic diseases such as hemophilia, growth disorders, and obesity. Part of defeating diabetes means stopping people from getting the disease in the first place. That's why we have started Cities Changing Diabetes with the ambition of halting the rise in diabetes. You can find more at the website cityschangingdiabetes.com. Thanks for listening to the FT's How to Build a Healthy City podcast supported by Nordisk.